You're listening to the Upper Room Frisco podcast. To learn more about UR Frisco, please visit upperroomfrisco.com. We're a body, so we literally have to be intimately joined to one another. Uh, the Lord told me one time that if we become the body, he'll supply the blood. And, but we, we love to drink the blood, the power of Jesus, like the power of redemption, the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, you know, the, the new covenant. We love to drink the blood, but we hate to eat the body, and we won't be able to, to sustain the power of the blood if there's holes in our body. Have you guys ever tasted how bad communion wafers taste? <laughs> right? You've taken communion in church before, and you, the pastor, <laughs> the pastor's doing the, the prayer, you know, on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after he gave thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken. And you put that wave in your mouth, and you're like, and you're like, and then he's taking a while to get to the part where you get to wash it down, right? And you're like, can we just, can we just get to the grape juice? <laughs> but if we, if we like literally, the, the body is us. Like if we, if we become one, if we ingest one another's lives, if we're, if we're, we're literally saying like your life is my life, like your battles are my battles, your victories are my victories. I, I, I want to know you. I want us to be joined at the hip and locked in arm. That's, that's creating a family, but it's, it's not tasty, it's messy. Like, we actually have to uh, take the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, when you eat the Passover lamb, you're not allowed to leave any of it behind. <laughs> and it's, it's like saying we have, to, we have to take it all. We have to, people's greatness, people's weaknesses, people's victories, people's defeats, it's showing up when it's inconvenient. Wow. Have you guys ever noticed how covenant and convenient look so much alike on paper, but they have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> Just a couple letters difference between covenant and convenient, but convenient has nothing to do with covenant. Covenant will cost you everything. And so what we do is <laughs> when, we, when, we, when we're giving of our, of our offerings and, and we're celebrating and worshiping God with how he's been generous in our life, we're also combining it with a time of just getting to know one another, being friends. There's something so sacred in the simple, and we've been missing it and going after the power and not realizing that we've been neglecting the container for the power. Okay. <laughs> Do you guys know how a penguin builds its house? It glues it together. Ig glue, yeah. <laughs> Come on now, feel the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Don't be afraid to giggle out. You know, the laughter is like a Trojan horse in which angels ride, right? <laughs> you let a little laughter and suddenly there's like angels of healing breaking out. Like, I just thought it was innocent laughter. 
Did you hear about the restaurant on the moon? Great food, no atmosphere. <laughs> oh, man. Who's wondering when I'm going to say something spiritual? <laughs> okay. I'm tempted to say more dumb jokes. All right, then. I mean... <clears throat> Do you guys know the difference between a hippo and a zippo? One is really heavy, the other is a little lighter. <laughs> There's layers where it's getting funnier, right? <laughs> I, I really hope this part's on the podcast. Um, <laughs> People are going to wonder, what in the world is this church about? Um, okay, so does anybody have uh, Philippians 1.6 memorized? Philippians 1.6. If you got it in your head, shout it out. Okay, guys. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. How about if I start the, if I start the sentence, you'll know it. He who started, yes, he who started a good work in you (laughs) uh, will be faithful to carry it to completion. That's also a good translation. Um, So in in this sentence, who is he? God, yeah, Jesus, Holy Ghost. Father, they're all on the same team. One of those guys, (laughs) they are one. (laughs) The Holy Spirit started a good work in you, and he's going to be faithful to carry it to completion. So does anybody in here want to take over his job in fixing ourselves? That sounds exhausting, right? That sounds like how... Millions of Christians over 2,000 years have burned out, right? We've all been in that place where we thought it was our job to fix ourselves. It's almost like, all right, Lord, you started this, but now it's time to get serious. How many podcasts and fastings and readings can I get in this week because I feel far from you? Like, (laughs) when he closed the gap. There is no separation. He reconciled us to himself. We are irrevocably enmeshed in the deepest communion within the Trinity. And if we, if we want to start something new in us, then we will have to be the ones who carry it to completion. So I I want us just to like really tap back into the good news that salvation is free and this process of working out all of that in, in this life with him, he is the captain of that too. He's in charge of that too. 
He is going to be so faithful to carry it to completion. You know what you have to do? What, what our job is? Have you ever seen a lump of clay on a potter's wheel? As long as we don't crawl off the potter's wheel, <laughs> we're doing our job. And he is right now in our lives. He's molding us. He's shaping us. He's turning us into vessels for glory. Uh, that, a lump of clay, we can't fix ourselves. Has, has anyone ever gone into like a deep, a season of deep introspection and come out excited about what they found in there? <laughs> no. Like you come out of that and you either have your opinion of you or worse, you have the accuser's opinion of you. But if you go and let the Holy Spirit shine his light on you, he, you're going to, he's so so a fan of you. He looks at you and sees the righteousness of Jesus. He looks at you and sees the completed works of Christ on the cross. <laughs> From the mouth of babes. Okay, so, um, sorry, I just jumped straight into, from jokes to preaching, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to camp out in Luke 9 for a little bit tonight, and I'm going to go down some rabbit trails here and there, but for the most part, <clears throat> Luke 9, it's just a really great chapter where uh, a lot of incredible things happen, there's a lot of great lessons uh, in the kingdom in this chapter. It starts off with... Um, Jesus sending out the 12, uh, and then Jesus feeds the 5,000, then Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, and then there's the transfiguration, and it's just, it's chock full of, of awesomeness. <clears throat> but I want to start right here in Luke 9, verse 1. This is when Jesus had called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all, all, all the demons and to heal diseases. That's like giving a, it's, it's like giving a, an eight-year-old keys to a Ferrari, right? Like, <laughs> he, just, he just endued these guys who've recently, recently been ransomed out of all sorts of crazy histories, all sorts of bad living, and he gave them the power of his name to go cast out demons and heal diseases. This is like a really terrifying day for the enemy. Because God wasn't using professional Christians to undo the domain of darkness. He was using babies. Like fresh off the boat, brand new, like foul-mouthed fishermen, tax collectors to go and systematically, wildly undo the domain of darkness. A terrifying day for the enemy. Let's, let's read on. And he sent them out to pr proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Uh, these often go hand in hand. So you guys are probably familiar with the term domain of darkness. 
We don't call it a kingdom because he's not a king. He's a usurper. He came and weaseled his way into our place of authority. And for thousands of years, him instituting his domain of darkness meant that he introduced disease, poverty, uh, natural disasters, death, all sorts of, these are the, the dealings of the domain of darkness. And so to come and proclaim a completely different kingdom means healing and multiplication of food and silencing of storms and raising of the dead and the enemy shaking in his boots, right? Because it's just these, yeah, come on. It's like babies are doing this. All right, let's read on. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Keep going. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave the city. And as for those who do not receive you as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Keep going. Departing, they began going through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Keep going. Now Herod who was like ruler, Herod the Tetrarch, heard of all that was happening and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. Keep going. And by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Do you guys see that these baby Christians were functioning in so much power that people had an easier time believing that a dead saint came back to life than these guys operating in that power. They're literally thinking something to the degree of, oh my goodness, John G. Lake has come back from the dead, or the mantle of Smith Wigglesworth has fallen upon thee. Guys, I have no problem honoring the saints of old, but think about the mantle God's placed on you. We do this today. We think what we need is that guy's thing or this person's thing. If only we had the, the purity of the Jesus people movement. Guys, all that stuff is great, but he has placed you here and placed specific gifts and callings and abilities on you to completely shift planet earth and continue to topple the domain of darkness keep on going Herod said I myself had John beheaded but who is this man about whom I hear such things and kept trying to see him So uh, in the following verses, Jesus feeds the 5,000, which is amazing. Peter says to Jesus in front of his homies, you are the Messiah of God. And then there's this really cool section. I want you to turn to Luke 9. Actually, I'm just going to paraphrase it because we don't have tons of time. Uh, Peter, James, and John are invited by Jesus to go up a mountain. And it was kind of out of the ordinary. They didn't know why. And when they got to this secluded place up on a mountain, uh, it said that uh, 
the appearance of Jesus' face began to change. Like, he's morphing, literally. And his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. Now, we, if you guys have been in the church for a long time, you've probably heard about the transfiguration. It's just like another really cool story. But let's let, like, think about it. What if Jeremy, who stands before you now, what if my face begins to morph and somehow I become even more handsome? And I look like a mixture of like Brad Pitt and Chris Hemsworth and suddenly I have real shoulders. Like, <laughs> right? I'm like, I start to look like Greg Schmidt over here, like just, just ripped. Like a vegan Avenger. And <laughs> and then, uh, and then uh, it goes even further. It says his clothes become as bright as a flash of lightning. This happened. And I want to tell you something even crazier. It happens. I've been in the room when someone got transfigured before. It will flip your wig. Like things get real. Like scared and happy at the same time somehow. Like (laughs) his clothes are bright as a flash of lightning. And so in this moment, Jesus is actually showing them the glory that he really has. Because in in Isaiah 53, we know that Jesus is actually kind of an ugly dude. It says he had no physical appearance that we should desire to look upon him. So he was an average to below average, below height, Jewish dude. Then no one looked at him and thought, that's the king. No, he's just, he's completely unassuming. But he goes up this mountain and his three best friends in this moment, Peter, James, and John, start to see who he really is. And the glory that he had with the Father from before begins to poke through into our reality. And he's looking like the God that he is. And his clothes, that what, what's actually happening in this moment is he, he is an approachable light, right? Like, all the, the different throne room scenes that you can read about in, 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 in the Bible, it talks about God dwelling in inapproachable, just blinding, pure light, the, like the full spectrum of fire and sound and light. You know, it's all there. And so what's happening is Jesus is starting to show them who he is in this moment, that he is literally like this portal of heaven, and he's shining with the glory of heaven in this moment. You know why I think he, like, why I think he was like a portal in that moment? Because some old dudes showed up from the cloud of witnesses, right? Moses and Elijah, just out, out of him steps Moses and Elijah 
You guys remember, we, we went over First Corinthians, or, uh, uh, sorry, Colossians chapter 1 a while back. In him are created all things through him and for him. In him, in Jesus, the exact representation of the Father, in him are all things. Yes, Jesus doesn't dwell in heaven. Heaven dwells in Jesus. Even the highest heavens can't contain him. So in this moment, Jesus is being transfigured, showing him, yes, it's really me. And out comes Moses and Elijah onto the mountain, and they're shining in glorious splendor also. This would be a top-notch encounter, wouldn't it? <laughs> you could write 10 books and retire on that one. <laughs> And then Peter starts jabbering, and he's like, Master, it's good that we're here. I'm going to set up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then a voice from heaven thunders, and they're actually enveloped in a cloud in this moment, like the, the cloud of heaven. They're inside of it, and it says a voice comes from the cloud. So the cloud in which they are enveloped in begins thundering with the voice of God. The Father is saying, this is my son, listen to him. Peter was silenced. <laughs> and then it says as, as quickly as this encounter started, it ended. And there's Jesus, he's back in his dingy robe covered in donkey droppings from the road that he's been walking, he's no longer shining in glorious splendor like he was, and he's back to his normal, just below average looking uh, ancient Hebrew self. So wild. So this is Luke 9.37. It says, on the next day when they had come down from a mountain, a great crowd met him. Let me ask you this before we go on. If you had an encounter like that, do you think that you'd be different? If you were Peter, James, John, do you think that the next day you wake up and like, you're supercharged? Like, a lot of the messes in your life are just straightened out? Maybe. It's a, it's a rhetorical question, just keep it in your head. It says, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, it convulses him uh, so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him, and it will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered. He rebuked them for their lack of faith, essentially. Um... So Jesus, let me skip, skip down. The demon uh, actually threw the kid to the ground and convulsed him. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Cool moment, another power encounter. Um, and then in the very next verse here, it says, and then a reasoning arose among them. Oh, sorry. 
Yeah, they were amazed. But let's skip to uh, verse 46. So I'm going so fast. I have like a huge teaching in 10 minutes. So a reasoning arose among them as to which one of them would be the greatest. In this moment, when like all eyes and praise and glory should be on Jesus, who like demonstrated once again that he is champion of all champions, all of his disciples, his A-team, start arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And it actually says a reasoning arose, not just like a, an empty-headed, I'm better than you argument. They're actually presenting reasons. An old mentor of mine uh, pointed this out to me. He said that, he, that they had just sent out the 12 to do mighty works of healing and miracles and all sorts of stuff. And then now they're arguing about who would be the greatest. So what kind of reasons do you think they're presenting for their greatness in the kingdom? It probably looks something like Bartholomew says, guys, when we were out ministering in the name of the Lord, I came upon someone with a broken leg and I laid my hands upon him and behold, his leg was no longer broken and that man gave his life to Jesus. And Matthew chimes in and says, Bartholomew, that is a wonderful story. But when I was ministering in the name of Jesus, I ran into a man who actually had no leg at all. <laughs> I spoke some words and poof, a leg grew. A hundred people saw it. They all gave their lives to Jesus. So whereas your healing of a broken bone is wonderful and I rejoice with you, Obviously, my creative miracle of creating a leg out of nothing proves that I'm a little bit greater than you. <laughs> and they're, they're, they're jockeying for position, right? They're bragging and boasting and using these spiritual reasons to say to one another why they're greater and should be acknowledged as the greatest. What kind of behavior would you call that? Rivalry, yeah. Arrogance, pride, self-promotion. Again, this is, this is like, upon this rock I will build my church, people. Like, these are the apostles <laughs> arguing about who would be the greatest. Um, has anyone ever been rebuked by the Lord for jockeying and pride and arrogance? Let's see what Jesus did, because this would be like a perfect opportunity to rebuke them. Uh, Luke 9, verse 47, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put, it, put him by his side and said to, him, said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among you, this one will be the greatest. So what were they arguing about? Who would be the greatest? How did, what did Jesus just tell them? How did, like, to, to be? how to be the greatest. He didn't rebuke them, did he? He actually gave them the path to the godly desire in their heart. See, we were all made to be great. Now, what manifests from that, 
from brokenness. That's a true desire, but what manifests from that brokenness is what you saw the apostles doing, and then Jesus redirects them and says, your desire is good, and here's how you get it. He didn't rebuke them. Let me just read real quickly. John answered, or interrupts him completely, with something completely off topic. Have you ever noticed this? John just like butts in. Jesus is giving this incredible teaching about how to become like a child. And John just says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we stopped him. Because he's not one of us. Okay, so this would be like discipleship 101. This is like day one, entry-level Christian stuff. Jesus should be saying to his disciples, okay, John, demons in people, bad. Demons cast out of people, good. Like, however the demons go, let them go, John. (laughs) I'm being jovial, but you get it. Um, so Jesus, first of all, what would you call that kind of behavior? If, if the disciples are casting out demons and healing the sick, and then they see someone they don't know doing it, and they rebuke him and stop him, what kind of behavior is that? <laughs> Church building mentality. Uh, <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> ding, ding. Territorialism, like, <laughs> what's that? sectarianism, yeah, saying, wait a minute, we're the, yeah, elitism, we're the elite, we're the, we're the apostles, who are you? Like, this is my thing. Anybody ever been rebuked for that kind of control or territorialism, jealousy, elitism? This is John, by the way, like the lovey-dovey guy in the, see what Jesus does. He actually doesn't rebuke them. I'm going to skip down. Uh, Jesus, in verse 51, it says, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. Actually, it's a cool verse. Let me go back. Jesus says to them, you know, whoever's not against us is for us. So he basically doesn't rebuke him. He just says, just leave him alone. Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, and he has to actually get to Jerusalem through uh, uh, region of Samaria. And so he sends out his apostles as like a crew ahead of him to find a place to stay. The Samaritans go, or the apostles go into a Samaritan village and no one's welcome, welcoming them because there's a lot of racism between the Jews and the Samaritans we're not going to get into. But so Jesus needed a place to stay. The Samaritans deny him. Verse 54, when James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? (laughs) At this point, (laughs) Jesus as a leader, if I were Jesus as a leader in this moment, I would feel like a failure. (laughs) Like I hooked my wagon to the wrong ponies. Like who, (laughs) my team is falling apart here. (laughs) <laughs> we got to go like back to the old scrolls guys like let's just we're we're in fact all of you are on disciplinary probation 
for one to three months. <laughs> and we're going to go back to the basics. I mean, what would you call it for these disciples to use the power of God that was meant to like heal and restore and cast out demons, to use the power of God to fry people? Stupid, racism, murder, like just rage. This would be the, Jesus, please, like rebuke your team. Like do something about them. Because so far, today, after the greatest encounter of their lives, they are manifesting all this horrible stuff that you're supposed to be hiding. <laughs> Think about it. If you were a racist murderer elitist, who is the one person you wouldn't want to show that to? Jesus, in the flesh, like he's the guy that you, you want him to think that you're cool and you got it together and you're ready for the next phase of leadership. <laughs> right? And here they are just showing everything hidden. It's as if they're forgetting how to hide. Do you think that that day they just suddenly became elitist, prideful, arrogant, racist murderers? <laughs> no, that was something that they'd been dealing with for a long time. And they're finally in a community where there's power present for deliverance. They're forgetting how to hide. They're letting their guard down. The guy who is so accepting, loving, and powerful, Mr. Joy himself, Jesus Christ Almighty, has showed them over the course of time that they don't have to hide. They're literally losing that, that muscle of the soul to keep a good face on things, a Sunday morning face. Like, they're losing the ability to control it. It's been switched off by the mercy and kindness of Christ. But Jesus turned and rebuked them, finally. Jesus, thank you for rebuking them. And he said, you don't know what kind of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. He didn't even go after their character. He didn't recite to them all the things they had done wrong. He actually, it almost seems like he deflected the blame onto something else. You don't know what... See, they had been afflicted with these demonic spirits of murder, rage, elitism their entire lives. And Jesus is getting excited that they no longer have the power to hide. Because the enemy is only empowered when he's able to hide. Light is shining into their lives and all this stuff is popping to the surface and Jesus is getting excited because this is what he came for, to proclaim good news to the captives, 
These guys have been held captive, and now they're getting good news. Jesus hasn't lost, uh, he hasn't started like questioning his leadership skills. He hasn't decided to go a different route. In fact, he actually doubles down. At the beginning of the next chapter, it says, and Jesus appointed 70 others to go out and do the same thing. 70 others who he had less time with, less time to disciple, (laughs) less time to train. He said, okay, when you go out, use my name to cast out demons and heal the sick. So Jesus is actually entrusting even more messed up people with his name to be his ambassadors. Do you guys think that it's possible that we've bought into an image of Jesus as a rebuker and a corrector? That it's almost like we're, we're, we're waiting for the moment for Jesus to bring the hammer down. Like, okay, we've screwed up seven times, 10 times, 15 times, any moment now, he's really gonna lay the law down. When in actuality, what's happening is light is coming closer to your life. What was hidden is being brought out and you're in a community that won't give up on you. Who went on later in life to write, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? Because man's anger does not bring about the righteousness of God. The guy who wanted to turn Samaritans into dust. Jesus' mercy and kindness and patience must have worked. Who went on and wrote about taming the tongue? Who wrote about how meaningless quarrels come from our own selfish desires? God uses broken people to do amazing things, period. And I think that we have, how do I say this, overemphasized or brought more attention on how God is using horrible things to transform us instead of using us to transform horrible things. He made the world and then created man to transform it, not the other way around. Does God work all things for our good? Yes. So like all the things that are swirling and happening around us, yes, when we bring them to the Lord, it is refining us, it is making us better. But I think the original plan and the thing that Jesus redeemed is turning us into ambassadors that change the world. Instead of being self-focused. I mean, what would happen 
if we got our eyes off ourselves and onto Jesus long enough to forget what our belly button looked like. We'd probably go out and do some amazing things instead of micromanaging our process of getting better. See, religion is based entirely on believing that there is separation or distance between us and God, and we're trying to close the gap through good behavior. Is this making sense? I'm all about God transforming us. I'm all about, you know, horrible things, like how, how horrible things end up transforming us. It's almost as if, like, it... God makes it so good, you, you almost think that maybe he did it, but he didn't do it. He's just so good at redeeming horrible things. But what if we got out of that mentality just a little bit and began to place more weight on one, this, this other thing, that we were made to transform horrible things, regardless of the state that we're in right now? I think it's, a, it's actually a deception that the church has fallen into. There's all these self-help teachings, right? How to be better at this or that. It's like going to TED Talks instead of like talking about Jesus. <laughs> I love the church, don't get me wrong. But if we fall into the deception that God has to change us, change us in order to use us, then we can easily become passive, allowing injustice and dysfunction, believing that God is behind it, using it somehow for our benefit. But in actuality, we are ambassadors of Christ in this very moment. And he's less concerned with transforming us than he is with using us to transform the world.